Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Business of Freelancing podcast. Today, we will be discussing sales. Once you're done with marketing, how do you actually move ahead and start a sales funnel with a client? I'm Ruben Lerner, and I'm here with Eric Dietrich. Hey, everybody. And Eric, why don't you catch people up? The story so far, you're doing marketing, and then where are you? Take us to the cliffhanger. So yeah, last episode, we talked a lot about marketing. And marketing, the definition I like to use is it is a way to let your prospects self-serve when it comes to figuring out whether you'd be a good fit to help them or not. So marketing tends to be about raising awareness of you and what you do, getting people interested, getting on their radar. And then the question kind of is, where does that end and where does sales begin? And if you go into organizations, I mean, because, you know, my business helps a lot with marketing, so we kind of see this firsthand. There are different places where people will draw a line and you'll hear terms like marketing qualified leads versus sales qualified leads, especially relevant when companies are big enough to have separate people or even whole separate business functions for sales and marketing. But for a freelancer, the area can be a little bit grayer, but I think of freelancing sales kind of starts at the point where you have a prospect that in some way expresses potential intent to work with you. So marketing, you know, might be that they're checking out your website or reading something you've written or having a casual conversation with you on DM over Twitter or something like that. It starts to become a sales situation where that Twitter DM conversation turns maybe towards like, hey, what kind of rates do you have? Or, you know, do you think you could help me with X? It can be a little blurry, like somebody who's asking you for your rates might just be curious. That's why there's no great answer. But I do generally think of expressing the idea of working with you is where things kick over into the realm of sales. So with marketing, we were kind of talking about getting people's attention. Now we're talking about you've got their attention and you've got their interest and we're kicking into a mode where you're actually looking to potentially do business with them. So I think that tees up the conversation pretty well. Anything to add there? Any experience you have? Like, how do you differentiate between marketing and sales? I mean, I guess the marketing that I do is sort of brand awareness. Like, who am I? So that, as you said, like, people will know, do they want to visit my website? Are they interested in my products at all? And marketing, I produce stuff, but I don't necessarily expect to hear anything back. Whereas sales is them reaching out back to me saying, hey, we've seen what you do and we think there's a potentially good fit here. Another way to say maybe is we are potentially interested in giving you money in exchange for what you sell. Let's talk about that some. I mean, it can be super, super short, right? Like, well, on the web, let's take it like the most ridiculous extreme where on the web you'll see a course, you'll see a book. Hopefully people see mine and do this and they say, yeah, I want this. Click, done. So sales is Zero effort on my part, except for what I put into you know, my website, and it's instantaneous. Mm. In the real world, though, and especially if you're dealing with businesses, it can be anywhere from a few hours to a really, really, really long time. Just to sort of like give the extreme end of this, I just in the last week signed with this very big company that wants me to do Python training for them. Fantastic. We are now in mid-October 2021. I started speaking with them in July of last year. And the first class that I'll be teaching will be in December. So it's a year and a half. <laughs> and that was a sales cycle, right? Like you could say it was marketing, but it wasn't. They knew who I was. They knew what they wanted. And it took that long to specify what exactly they want and how much is it going to cost. And wait, how much is it going to cost again? And how many people get like again and again and again? And me nudging them and then nudging me, although actually they didn't have to nudge me because I really wanted the job. So me nudging them. <laughs> so these things can take a really long time. And yet that's just like the nature of the beast. Yeah, I think now that you mention it, that's maybe an important bit of context to set is talking about the sales cycle. So if you're wondering what that means, I've never formally defined this before, but I use the term all the time. And it's the time during which somebody you know expresses that initial interest where they go onto your sales radar it's the time between that and when they become a customer with which you're engaged, like the average time there. And I think you touched on a couple of things that are important for context setting. The sales cycle for something that's a commodity that costs very little money, like a book or you're going to order some batteries, that sales cycle is measured in seconds. I've discovered I'm out of AA batteries. I need to order some more. I go onto Amazon and hit buy. 
that can range all the way up to the sales cycle you've described here, which I've also encountered in enterprise, which is measured in years, that the time between that initial interest and eventually having them become a customer is years. And I think the biggest determining factors there, and you know, maybe you'll have some to add here, but for me, it is number one, what is your price point? So the lower the price point, the shorter the sales cycle and the lower touch the sales cycle. Nobody's getting on a prospect phone call to sell batteries. It's absurd. You wouldn't do that. But you're never going to have somebody point and click and buy, you know, $10 million worth of consulting. That's going to be a phone call. It's going to be in-person visits, whatever it is. So it depends on the price point. It depends on the customer. So like enterprises have very long, often painful sales cycles that they put you (laughs) through because they have to go through legal and there's all these compliance considerations and so on and so forth versus a small bootstrapper startup, you know, that can be a lot shorter. So I guess like the price point, the size of the business, and then there can be some variance in how much touch it requires to sell the thing, like how complex your offering is. Those are the factors I can think of that determine or affect sales cycle. Anything I'm missing? Yeah, I mean, over the last, I guess, year and a half, I've been doing everything online, as of many of us. And so it sort of took me a little bit by surprise when I guess it was in August, a company called me up, said, we're interested in working with you. We went back and forth a bit. So it was like a few weeks or so. And I guess they started in July. And then in August, he said, okay, we're ready to move ahead. Let's meet. I was like, oh, meet. (laughs) Right. I forgot I used to do that with people. And I thought that was an anomaly until just a few days ago, another new client said, so before we go ahead with these three different courses, four days each, how about you come to our office and we talk? And I was like, oh, right. I guess I used to do this pre-pandemic. And it makes so much sense. They're going to be spending a lot of money. They're going to be engaging me. I'm going to be training their people. It makes sense that I should go and like talk to them a little bit before I just sort of show up and plug my thing into their screen and start teaching. So that is also part of the sales cycle, because if I really turn them off or if I really say the wrong thing, I could break it. Most probably it'll be positive. Most probably everything will go smoothly. But the higher price it is, the more they're going to want Yeah, that high touch interaction, understanding who you are. They're going to want to tell you who they are. And this might or might not affect what you do, but you have to grin and nod and say, oh, oh, that's very important. That's very interesting. That'll definitely affect what I do. And then you can do exactly what you would normally do. Just don't tell them that. And if you're one of my clients, I, of course, have never done that to you. But these things can be longer short. Usually they're not that bad. I mean, these Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies can be painful. But that's also because they have an army of people who have to look over everything. So they have to look over the contracts. I mean, I lost a gig once because it took so long for us to agree on what kind of insurance I needed to buy that by the time we agreed, it was too late to invite people to the course, and the course had to be canceled, and then the company had massive layoffs, and it never happened. I lost many thousands of dollars just because of the stupidity of this. But yeah, they have an army of people look at these things, and you have to recognize that. (laughs) I can relate to all of this, too. I mean, like, (laughs) I've dealt with a number of different sales cycles, so like, I have books that I've sold, so I, I know what that's like, and then kind of lower touch offerings over the course of time. Like early on when I was just writing blog posts, kind of freelance in my spare time, that usually could happen over email. And then all the way up to like my own consulting, which would be five or six figure engagements. Generally, especially pre-pandemic, there was an expectation of actual in-person conversation. And some of that's really just because you might have traditionalists that just expect that, like it's table stakes, like anybody I'm going to do business with in this way, like, of course you come out and talk. The larger the engagement, the more expectations somebody might have just generally of what you ought to do to show up. So even if, you know, if you're selling six or seven figures worth of something, you might get clients that think you just can't do a deal like that without an in-person conversation. Even if you could do it over Zoom, that's not how that works. Yeah, there are some things that you contend with there. It's been pretty interesting over the course of time to see the different expectations, understand the different length of a sales cycle involvement, because it can really vary pretty widely. I think it's also worth putting on the map that if you're a freelancer selling, you know, knowledge work type of services, I would say your typical engagement is going to be in the four to six figure range, I'm guessing, depending on the scope of a freelancer's engagement is like. If you're below that four-figure range, it's more likely that for the most part, you're selling some kind of productized service or something, but services-based stuff, probably four to six figures, and usually that's at least a Zoom call. I don't Do you have like different opinions on that? But I just don't see a lot of businesses for four figures, and especially five or six, pulling a trigger over email or something that's not common. 
I mean, I'm trying to think. I recently sold to a big company that had been a client of mine before a bunch of recorded courses, Hmm. but it was still already five figures in dollars. So like we had some negotiation, like they took a while to get back to me on various things because they had to check with their departments, but like they at least had a budget to spend. They just need to approve it with a handful of people. But if you get into like the twenty, thirty thousand dollars, and certainly if it's over six figures, wow, then it's going to take some time and they're going to want a lot of attention. And if it's smaller than that, if it's like four figures, quite possibly they can just do it out of their discretionary budget. It's astonishing to me always, like how much money these companies have and how much they're just going to let employees spend it because they see this as a perk of working there or they want to give everyone education budget or whatever. One thing that you brought up there that I want to touch on, because this actually is an interesting dichotomy for hit subscribe and business in the past, is there is a difference between your sales cycle for new business and your sales cycle for recurring business. With hit subscribe, for instance, I don't think, I'm not actually directly doing our sales anymore, but when I was for a long time up until recently, I don't think we ever did a five-figure deal of any kind without a call. I don't think that came up. But we have definitely done $30,000, deals without a call once they had already done business with us. So the re-up sales cycle that you'll go through, like if you have clients that want to re-engage, typically in general that sales cycle is shorter because you've already cleared whatever logistical hurdles and agreements you need to, so they've vetted you as a vendor. And they also hopefully trust you and have a good relationship with you. So often they'll agree to extensions or what have you with much less fanfare. I do think that diminishes over time. So if you have a good relationship, you work together back in 2016 and they want to re-engage you, that's probably close to being a new prospect. But if you just got done working together over the summer, it'll probably be much less formal and a much shorter sales cycle for them to re-engage you. And does that square with your experience? 100%. So like starting up with most of these, especially big companies, takes a long, long time, as I've said. Sometimes it's just like a few weeks or, or even a few months. Like I once want to do something, I want to say for Apple. And I said, well, I have dates like in two weeks. And she said, you know, we can't get it through our onboarding like process in two weeks. Like that's just not going to happen. And so like bigger companies can't do that. That said, once you're in the system, then yeah, it can be lightning fast and there's very little bureaucracy. So I've got one big client where I probably do like two weeks of teaching a month and I've done it for years where every few months I send the head of training a bunch of dates in email. I say, here's some dates, use them for whatever classes you want, long, short, whatever. And she says, great. And then I get email back from her saying, okay, I've chosen these dates. That is how much I have to do, except for then like the formality of filling out a short web form saying what my pricing is. But it is so painless compared to what it once was because we all know each other. They trust me. I trust them. Like you often are worried as an early freelancer, especially with small clients of getting stiffed. And so you're always worried like, oh my God, I have to go through everything and watch over everything. And these big companies typically want to spend the money. They have it. And if they don't spend it, they're going to be in trouble because their accounting is going to be all weird. So the odds are good that once you've reached an agreement with them, they will want to pay you. And yes, you should still go over contracts and yes, you should check things. But like, if you've gone through the sales cycle, you're in, you will be paid for whatever they say they will use you for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like this distinction here that we're drawing because it hadn't occurred to me in thinking through what we might talk about. But like, oh my goodness, do you want to be selling to former happy customers more than just about anything else? So as a freelancer, and again, this might be, you know, going back to a couple episodes ago in, in favor of specializing in niching, the more you specialize in niche, the more you're going to sell business repeat projects typically, I would say on average, or at least have similar kinds of clients. There is nothing that makes sales easier than selling to previously satisfied customers. It's just night and day. And that's an argument for having a good service deliverable so that people want to do repeat business with you. But it's also, you know, a good reason to maybe find, even if it's not through niching or specializing, like an idea of how you might do recurring business with someone. I mean, you don't want to do that just to win business, like actually think of a way to help them. But if you're doing something that's episodic, it's so much easier to sell to people that you know and have a relationship with. And the effort you put into each client is going to be large. So if you can work with a big client, like this is why people are willing to endure the pain of these long sales cycles with big companies. I mean, if this would be a company I just signed with, I was my only client, 
than 18 months, right? Bad news. I haven't been able to pay for anything, you know, for groceries or <laughs> gas or anything. And so like I've gone out of business before we even started our first thing. But if you can handle that and have a buffer and other clients, hopefully, then the upside is that once you get over that hurdle, there's almost infinite demand and it's trivially easily to do it. And the longer the relationship goes, the easier it's going to be. Yeah. Another subtle point there is depending on the nature of what you're doing, if you live through that long onboarding process, there's a decent chance that would-be competitors and followers, et cetera, either won't or haven't. If you get onboarded by a company that genuinely wants to work, like in you know your case, Ruben, training for Python, if they genuinely want that training, the principals who are steering the engagement through all of the legal and compliance hurdles, they don't want to do that again. Right. So once they've got you as their Python vendor, you would have to really do something dramatically wrong for them not to always turn to you just because it's so painful to get a vendor onboarded. And there's always the advantage of upselling as well. Mm -hmm. So like a company that I do a lot of training for, I started doing just intro Python. And they said, well, do you think you could do something that's more advanced? I said, absolutely. So now I do intro and advanced. And at some point I said, well, you know, I teach Git also. And the head of training said, you what? You teach Git also? Bam. <laughs> so now those three courses, I basically meet everyone who comes into their company and they keep hiring. So this is a great relationship. And it's not uniquely me, right? Like that's the way these things are. It's all personal trust. And if they trust you and like you, and if it's easy to work with you, if you call them up yelling and nickeling and diming them and causing them trouble, they're not going to want to work with you. But if you make their lives easy as professionals, mm. they'll reach out to you again. And they'll be more forgiving if and when things go wrong. So I think we've transitioned into talking about sales channels by talking about like one specific sales channel, which is repeat business. And I would say in thinking about the different kinds of ways that you would get business, repeat business is the best way to get it. But it might be worth talking through other sales channels. And by sales channel, I mean, how does a prospect come to exist in your world? Like, how do you start to have this sales conversation? So repeat business is a big one, but like, obviously you need to have business in the first place. So like, Maybe we can walk through some of the ways that people get business. And I think for starters, if I'm thinking freelancers, the first thing that occurs to a lot of freelancers to go do is Upwork, Top Toll. So I'll call those labor brokerage sites, or maybe you reach out to a recruiter to broker 1099 contract work, but brokerages, let's call it. Do you have any experience working with brokerages to land business? I did a little sort of subcontracting for other people in my early days, um, and that was okay. I mean, basically, I was getting work, and I was getting experience, and they were paying me, and that worked okay. And I even then sort of did that to other people later on. But these sites, like Upwork, so Upwork was previously, I think it was like the merger of two sites. I used to use Elance back before they changed their name. Right. And I was naive enough to think, wow, what a great thing. I can put out proposals and people will, you know, choose me because I'm so great. And I did actually get two great long-term clients through them, which I'm convinced now was a fluke mm -hmm. because most of the clients there are not that great. Most of the clients there are looking for as cheap as possible. You have a lot of developers in very cheap countries who are bidding and it's a race to the bottom. So can you do well on these sites? You can. Is it worth maybe trying when you start off? I'm guessing yes, just to get some basic experience. But what I discovered in sort of thinking about it and monitoring myself was I was spending many, many, many hours putting together many, many, many proposals, all of which went nowhere because I was pricing myself in Western rates or anything close to it. And others were saying, well, for $20 an hour, we'll give you a whole team. You know, I can't compete with that sort of thing. So that was my experience. And I'm glad that I finally sort of woke up and didn't do it anymore but I also, thinking back, wonder, would I have been able to get anywhere if I had not used them? So I'm, I'm not totally dismissive of them. Hmm. I have never directly used sites like that. And I have to be careful in what I say about it to an extent. Because like you, when people write into dead tech and ask me for advice, if it pertains to these things, I say, stay away, run away, burn it. That said, if you're brand new, if you have bills to pay, it will be a way to get leads. It's just that the way I actually think of these sites is that they essentially superimpose the paradigm of employment over working for yourself. So they take care of sales for the most part. You just have to have you know, the final conversation. They take care of all the marketing, so to speak. They take care of all the accounting and finance. They basically remove everything about owning a business 
except the part where you're a technician, which maybe if I think of it later for picks, I'll talk about the e-myth technician manager and entrepreneur paradigm. But they remove everything but the technician aspect. So it winds up being like interviewing for jobs. I mean, that's exactly what a job search is. You don't really have like marketing or sales or finance. You just every now and then go do a handful of interviews and then somebody hires you. And so you get used to that kind of competing against a bunch of undifferentiated peers. So kind of like I wouldn't knock salaried work. I mean, it makes sense for people. I wouldn't knock this in the sense that especially in the beginning, it can be a low touch or low pressure way to get business. Maybe if you're moonlighting, it's passive or something. I can see a use case for it, but I don't see anything but a super intense grind if you're going to try to earn a living on a long-term basis using a labor brokerage. I just, well, I wouldn't do that. Because like you said, it's a race to the bottom. So I think there is a difference. And I'll tell you, I don't know a lot about TopTal, except that I spoke with them earlier today about like speaking at a conference next month. By the way, like they don't know this, but like a few years ago, they asked if I would like interview. And so I went through their thing and I did not pass. So haha. <laughs> now, but they at least try to be, I think, more akin to your subcontractor and their big contracting firm mm. than say Upwork, where it's an auction sort of model. That said, I have heard from friends that while TopTal says, oh, we're working with these big companies and they'll pay top dollar, that's sometimes true, but not always true. There's some negotiation going on. It's a little more flexible than they might like to let on. But as you say, it takes away all of the pain or much of the pain of being a contractor and does give you the freedom to work on lots of projects. They do have incredible demand right now for programmers. Yeah, I tend, I actually... Was it 2016? They reached out to me when they were new, and I think they were trying to get people onto the platform, like bloggers or something, to talk about it. And they were doing a algorithm trivia style thing, and so I just didn't want to do it. <laughs> I was kind of <laughs> like, well, how about I don't do that and you just like broker work for me? Which was interesting because at the time I was mostly doing like pure consultative work and sometimes like onsite trainings, like in TDD and stuff. So I wasn't looking for app dev work. It was a weird fit, but yeah, I could see that. And it actually makes me think of like subcontracting as like a subset of what we're talking about here. Because I do think there's a spectrum between a pure like marketplace, if you will, for people to bid. And then like TopTel, I think, is more focused on software engineers. And then you'll get firms maybe like a Robert Half that are maybe more oriented like traditional recruitment. They're trying to place you as a subcontractor. So there's a lot of that that goes on, but then you can actually get into some more interesting and boutique subcontracting arrangements. Like for instance, I used to do some subcontracting as a consultant for a custom app dev firm. They just didn't have people that could do the kind of specialized static analysis I was doing. So they'd often call me up and they'd bring me in and we weren't particularly secretive about the relationship. I didn't pretend to be an employee of theirs, but it was a good like lead generation channel that still let me do my normal like sales work. I would turn business down or accept it or what have you. But because they were a large consulting firm doing work at companies that were Fortune 500 companies, Ford, state governments, working through them let me bypass a lot of the traditionally long sales cycle. So I do think, you know, as I'm seeing this, there's a range between like, I'm going to put an ad up on Fiverr, you know, a profile or something like that all the way to like specialized subcontracting where they're just bringing you business. I guess what I'd say there is like the thing I might keep an eye on as you evaluate opportunities like that where other people are bringing you business is exactly how much of being a business owner are they letting you take over or are they letting you abdicate, I should say, are they taking over? And the more of it there is, the more cautious I'd be unless you specifically want just kind of like pseudo employment in a gig sense where you just switch gigs slightly more often than jobs like there's nothing wrong with that but if you're looking to build a business and a practice be careful about subcontracting even boutique subcontracting be very careful about labor brokerages i would say because it's a treadmill it's hard to build a business what about rfps which is what request for proposals hmm. so i've looked at these i might have even submitted to one or two in the past I certainly never got anything. And just to like define it, so like you'll have a business or very, very often a government or that sort of large public agency that where they say, we need a new website. And so in order not to play favorites, we're going to say here is, it's also known as like a public tender in Israel and in Europe, where they say, you know, you can all bid on it. Here are the requirements. 
tell us what you want and we'll go through them. And sometimes they say we'll evaluate on quality and sometimes they say we'll evaluate it just on price. There are all these different sorts of criteria that sometimes they all just give it to you know my uncle, but <laughs> I can't say that in public. That tends to be out upon in most developed countries. But basically, have you ever applied to one? I'll tell you, the, the reason why I have not done so is the requirements are so strict. You must be making this much money. You must have this. You have to put money in escrow. You have to deliver at this kind of time. So it's such onerous requirements for such intense competition. And then you have to put together this incredibly long proposal. And oh, my God, I don't have time for that. I have some experience with this that's kind of like varied. The firm I was talking about that I used to subcontract with, they would often bring me into subcontract as a tip of the spear kind of thing, meaning I would come in to do some kind of assessment or management consulting. And usually on the back end, that would lead to a more significant kind of custom app dev, like standard arrangement. And when I was doing that, I started to work with their sales folks on the proposals they would write for the engagement that followed in my wake. And that led me into territories where sometimes we were consulting with a firm that would issue an RFP for the work we talked about them needing. So I would go in with the firm and we would tell them, you need to do this, that, and the other. You should hire a team of you know 20 people to like help build this out. And then they would say, okay, that's fair, but we're not just going to give the inside track to you. You also need to go through this RFP process. So I've seen what it's like when big companies issue RFPs and as a freelancer, you do not want to do that because you are competing like this company had full-time staff that were just dedicated to answering RFPs and going through all the details that Ruben's mentioning here. I mean, they will bury you. You will not be able to compete with them. The other flavor of RFP I've seen is where like smaller firms are essentially saying, I'm going to pick one of like four or five vendors. Here are my project requirements go and they'll call up, you know, they'll ask friends and family and whatnot. Can you refer some companies to me? Like imagine if you were making a website out there, listener, and you wanted help with like landing pages and SEO or something, what you would probably do is ask people for advice and then try to identify like four firms and talk to them as if you were interviewing them. I don't know if it's the case in Israel, but sometimes in the US, this more informal thing is referred to as an RFP. That's at least like, they're basically reaching out to you and a few others. And it's like a slightly more formalized you know, process just for getting quotes from different people. Right, exactly. And sometimes, I mean, they'll structure it this way. They'll say, I'm doing an RFP, or they'll like draw up a document, write up of like their project requirements, and then say, all right, you know, write proposals for me or do a presentation. If it's that, I mean, that's kind of just like the old school version in the sense of what Upwork is. You have the advantage of having somehow or another been specifically found and referred by name. And you're probably not competing with a ton of people because the company's not going to be able to talk to 20 or 30 different vendors. And depending on how this is going, it's probably too penny ante for like serious vendors like the one I was doing subcontract work for to crush you. They don't want that business. So that can be okay. But again, it's the race to the bottom. Like I've consulted with a lot of companies that are trying to pick vendors or manage vendors. And like I always joke about this, but it's kind of mostly true. When you do something like that, they make a big show of deliberating, but then they subconsciously just pick the second cheapest option. They don't know how to evaluate the vendors. Right. <laughs> yeah. So what else? What about referrals? I don't know about you. Referrals are like the best. Mm -hmm. I mean, in my case, and I would say nowadays easily 90% of my business, my new business is all from referrals. But of course, you need to have a track record before you can have referrals. And in my case, I'd even say, I've sort of been doing this for long enough that referrals are just sort of like a natural outgrowth of it. I've taught in so many companies and so many people have switched jobs and so many people are switching to Python at their companies. So it happens all the time. Some company calls me up. I say, where do you hear about me? Oh, well, Joe Schmo on our staff used to work at such and such a company and he was in your course and said we should call you or i was speaking to you know my colleague the training manager at such and such other company so that's everyone's dream and i think it's super achievable but you have to then stick to your focus and your niche for a long time 100% agree i would say referrals are the second best way in my opinion of acquiring business to repeat business and it's because it's so similar so like with hit subscribe I honestly kind of gave up on bothering to do much marketing for HitSubscribe. We didn't need it. We don't do other traditional channels. It's mostly referral business. And it is, yeah, somebody leaves company A, they go to company B and bring us along. Or 
they hear about us through a recommendation. And that was also true of my management consulting practice. Occasionally, somebody would reach out through dead tech, but usually it was so-and-so said, you know, I should give you a call about this. It's such a warm introduction or recommendation because somebody has already told them that you can help. Often it lets you bypass this like competitive vendor process. Like they might just go straight to the point and say, I've heard you're good for this. I don't want to look around anymore. Let's just talk. You know, what do we do? So it is really the holy grail. You get there by doing good work, by adding value, like not taking shortcuts. One thing I will say is if you're new, you can get referrals from your life as a salaried employee, for instance. Yes. It's not quite the same, but you can reach out to former employers, former colleagues, people that you know, and say, hey, I'm doing this now. And they might make an introduction and say, you know, so-and-so used to be my employee, always did great work, and I heard you were looking for someone to build your new website. You should talk. Absolutely, 100%. So what about advertising, right? It seems so attractive. Oh, I'll spend some money. I'll put it on Google. People search in Google all the time. They'll come to my site. ka <laughs> I will tell you, I know that online advertising works. I know that lots of people do it. I know that I'm not an expert at it, and thus maybe my experiments have not been a good measure. But all of my attempts at advertising have been profound failures, I tried like a month or two ago. I was like, let me give this another shot and see if I can get people to come in. No, 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 like not good. So I'm probably not so good at it, but I'm assuming that people will come to my website, see I have a track record and want to buy from me. If you have zero track record, close to zero track record, then I cannot imagine that the advertising is going to help. You know, maybe for a, a future season, we could find someone on that would come and prove us wrong about this, but I can't recommend a lead generation channel or a sales channel less for freelancers. <laughs> it's just so hard to picture it working. And of everything we're talking about, it's the only one that will like, you know, actually cost you out of pocket money. So you're not just out your own effort. If you fail, you're out actual money. And I don't know what that looks like. You take an ad out, especially if you're new and you're a generalist, do you take an ad out so that when somebody Googles like software developer, you come up? I mean, good luck feeding out <laughs> Infosys and Cognizant for that. I don't see a path to it. As a freelancer, your buyer is typically a director level or above, meaning the person who's actually going to sign off on your engagement is in organizational leadership. And there's already a lot of people vying for their attention. And to them, generalist labor is kind of a commodity. So if you imagine like a CIO listening to their favorite like radio station and you could somehow get on there, it wouldn't go real well if you were like, hey, you should really call you know, Bob Smith about software development, that's not going to like stick in the CIO's head. It's kind of below their pay grade. They have a whole interview process for that. I, I can't picture a path to joy. Yeah. So what about inbound, which you separated from inbound, which you separated from ads? What sorts of uh, sales channels would you describe as inbound here to get people the sales process? Well, to me, I think of inbound as what came, you know, in the last episode as we talked about marketing. Those are when people find you. Mm -hmm. I mean, in a sense, you could call like referrals inbound, but I think of your marketing as inbound. So if you build a website that attracts a lot of visitors, that's inbound if one of them reaches out to you about sales. If you go speak at a conference and somebody comes up to you afterwards and starts talking to you, in a sense, that's inbound. So I distinguish that as people get into your sales funnel by coming to you rather than you going to them, paying for advertisement to get in front of people, answering RFPs, going into Upwork. That's you making an effort to get in front of people when they want to buy, not them making an effort to get in front of you. So I'm currently switching away from it to uh, another company, but I have a Calendly, which lets people put things on my calendar. And on my homepage, right, you go to learner.co.il, and right there it says, you know, want to do corporate training, want me to do corporate training, click here and let's schedule a meeting. And so the great part about that is that people want to talk to me about it. They can make the next move. They can push the sales cycle forward and initiate a meeting. First of all, it's taken me several iterations to get this right. Second of all, it's still pretty rare for someone to reach out there. Every time someone schedules something, I'm like, wow, amazing. And it's about once every, shall we say, two months. The big mistake that I made at the beginning, it was not selective enough. So someone would go to my website, say, hey, I'd like to talk to Ruby about Python training. 
well, what am I talking to these people about? So Calendly lets you add a bunch of questions that you can ask them that they must fill out before they can do it. And so there are questions like, you know, how many people are on your team? What do you want to be studying? And here and there, I'll then get people who fill it out. I have an option, like how many people are on your team? One of the options is one person, it is only me. And yes, I have a corporate budget to pay for such training. And yet I occasionally still have people fill that out. One guy was like, a very wealthy entrepreneur and investor. So he actually fit the bill. The rest of them, I email them and say, you sure? Really, you have thousands of dollars a day to spend on this? And then they go silent. And certainly now I've gotten a bunch of clients from someone seeing that, filling it out. I don't think it was discovered my homepage and then filled it out, but it made it easier. It, it sort of reduced the friction involved in reaching out to me and scheduling a meeting. So that like, I think is an excellent transition into talking about the sales funnel which given that I'm in a marketing business and have a lot of sales experience, but also have been hiring and backfilling sales, I've had occasion to learn a lot about because in marketing, one of the things I always say about marketing is that you're giving people the tools to self-select. So if on your website, you were saying, you know, I don't help companies below a certain size or whatever, that would in theory let a person who would otherwise fill out that form or try to get in touch with you say, oh, this is going to be a waste of my time, never mind. So your marketing is, yeah, about getting other people's attention and kind of promoting your services, but it's also about making sure you're getting the right kind of people, qualified leads, let's call it. The sales process is about deciding whether the subset of qualified leads is a good fit, whether you're mutually a fit and should you do business together? Do you have the capacity, the mutual interest? Is it a good arrangement? And I think of the first part of that process, although you do it throughout, is disqualification. So you want to get rid of tire kickers in your process as quickly as possible. You can model your sales process as a Kanban board. Let's say you have everybody that expresses interest in working with you on the leftmost column and then you might have a column for corresponding over email, a column for a discovery call, a column for writing a proposal. Those are kind of loosely the steps that you might go through in sales. And at every one of those stages, you're going to have some folks fall off for various reasons. Sometimes you want to disqualify them. You want to get rid of bad fits as early as possible with as little effort as possible. Sometimes they'll ghost you or disqualify you. But that's kind of what we're talking about with the sales funnel. That's why I like the transition there, which is you are optimizing to get rid of tire kickers like early in the sales process, which I think is really important. I'll add, by the way, that you should not feel bad that you are getting rid of bad potential leads. You should not be like, oh, my God, I've lost this great opportunity. Mm. Because likely these sorts of people would either not be good fits and then you wasted your time or they would just be incredibly annoying and difficult. I mean, I had a guy call me, I don't know, about a month or two ago. And he said, we need a course. Okay, great. This course is two days. Oh, no, no, we can't do two days. We need one day. And oh, you need to give me a discount. And oh, we're like, it was going to be a Git course. He said, wait, you want people to have laptops? We don't have laptops in my company. Everyone's going to be in their office on a desktop. And they'll come into the lecture room to hear you talk. I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, you've got to be kidding me. Fortunately, he went away because I was just going to say no to him. But these conversations are important because you can then decide, is this worthwhile from business perspective or your sanity's perspective or both? Yeah, I think that's an important point. Maybe a year ago, we hired a sales consultant for Hit Subscribe to come in and help us like make a hire and tighten up our process. And he had something that he would say, and it was like at the end of doing a proposal presentation, he had a slide or something that was like, so do you want to move on to the next steps? You know, say, yes, we'll get going. We'll put you into our onboarding process. But no is okay, too. If it's just not a fit, like, don't feel like you need to be polite. I'd rather know that now. And the reason for that was he wouldn't want to waste his time emailing them every week or whatever to see what was happening. Like, if they were going to be a no, learn that earlier. And I thought that was such a great philosophy because he went on to say, like, yes is ideal. No is also a win because no uh, stops you from wasting any more time on this prospect. So yeah. if someone's a no, sometimes in the worst case, you discover that they're a no halfway into the engagement, meaning you got some red flags, you didn't feel good about the engagement, you proceeded, you made it happen anyway. And then in your case, like you show up, you're teaching, this person is horrible and berating you in front of the class. And you're like, man, I wish I would have listened to my subconscious and just said no to this right from the get go. Yeah, now I'm remembering all the red flags. There were so many with this guy. Oh, boy. <laughs> he said, oh, we have this guy who really doesn't want to use Git. So he's a real problem on the team. So you're going to have to convince him also while you're teaching the class. 
<laughs> right. And it just like went downhill from there. We've talked about a bunch of these sort of pieces of the sales funnel. Maybe there are a few uh, little bits we can pull out here before we go too crazy over our time. Proposals, very briefly, I guess, like literally. So someone's interested, right? Someone calls you, you've had a great, fantastic phone conversation, maybe more than one. Maybe you've had an in-person meeting. They say, okay, this sounds great. Give us a proposal. What does that mean? Generally, when I was consulting, it might be a two-ish page document, which, by the way, it took me a long time to narrow down to that. <laughs> but it would usually be like a statement of the opportunity. You know, here's why we've talked. Typically, both for consulting and for Hit Subscribe, the process was loosely. We do a discovery call. I gather notes, figure out whether we think we can help or I thought I could help. And then we schedule either another call or I'd send over a proposal asynchronously. So assuming it seemed like a fit. The statement of opportunity, if you will, was basically like, here's what we discussed. Here's what you think I can help with. And then a little bit of a statement of like what might be involved. Although as a consultant, I never really wanted to get too into like the nitty gritty details. And then just kind of like pricing and options. And that was really kind of it. It's a similar thing with hit subscribe. We'll present some options and then send over a more formal proposal document for signature. So you kind of conceptually agree in conversation to the work that you're going to do. And then you formalize that a little bit with a proposal you send to them. And I think both of those are good models for freelancers just because both businesses were in the same kind of scope and sales cycle that a freelancer would have. Is that similar to yours? Like, what do you do proposal-wise? Yeah. First of all, I can't stress enough. Keep it ridiculously simple. I was telling Eric before we started recording that in my early days also, like what he said, I wrote these incredibly long volumes that I would research for days and I would write for hours. And they were like three, four, five, six pages long with options one through 10, each of which had subsections A through D. And like, I remember even getting calls like saying, okay, how much is this going to cost? I have no idea. I was like, well, I'm giving you all the options. People don't want options. They want solutions. So like the easier, simpler, shorter you can make it. So they can give you a yes or no is good. Nowadays, typically I'll just send like a three paragraph, four paragraph email message. So like what you just said, Eric, you know, this is what I'm proposing. These are the limits. You know, I will have up to 20 people in the class. It will cost you such and such. I expect to have, you know, an internet connection and lunch at your cafeteria and parking space if I drive. Done. Now, sometimes a company will then email me back and say, listen, what you sent is fine, but for a purchasing department, it needs to be in a formal document. So I copy and paste it into a PDF and bam, it's a formal document. But really nowadays, these proposals take very little time because it's been standardized. And that's the key. With some of these huge companies, they'll want to break things into what's called a master services agreement, like an MSA, which is your overall agreement with them. And then they'll have an individual statement of work for each particular piece of things that you're doing. Fine. That's just a big formalized version of what I just described, what we just described. I wouldn't worry about too much, except for don't be surprised by the terminology, because I sure was. Talking about both the options and complexity of a document like that, with the complexity, it's wasted because I'll tell you exactly what the prospective client is going to do. They're going to ignore everything you've written and scan right down to the price. Yes. And then <laughs> that's right. once they've ascertained that, that'll inform to them whether they even want to bother to go read it. Like, I mean, just picture yourself if you were like talking to a few different car dealerships about having your car repaired or something like that would be your first, you know, what's it going to cost me? Okay, like what's involved? So they're going to do that. And only then are they going to go and read in more detail. And if it's a 20-page document, nobody is going to read all that. In terms of proposing options, I think that's important. Like one piece of advice I would have in general for sales cycles that's especially probably hard to wrap your head around as a freelancer if you're new to it. You want to make most of the decisions throughout the process for the client. So like, Ruven, you're talking about, I provide training with up to this many people. You know, here's how I come on site. Here are the terms. I think of that as structure throughout the sales process. And it's super important that you define the structure for two reasons. Number one, it creates the impression that you're good at this and you know what you're doing and you've done it a lot. Number two, somebody's going to create the structure. And if you don't do it, they will. So you might think you're being flexible to say like, oh gosh, I don't really have a discovery process, whatever you want, whatever you think is best. That radiates in experience. And it also invites the client to make all kinds of demands of you. On the flip side of that, if you say, we do a 30-minute discovery call. Then these following things happen. I send this over via email. We book a second call. 
like that might sound like you're being bossy or something. It isn't. Clients appreciate that. They don't want to make lots and lots of decisions. They don't want to figure things out. If you're saying, I know exactly how to solve this problem of getting your staff trained in Python. I've done it over and over again. That's a blessing. They're not experts in Python training. They want you to solve that problem for them. Agreed. I mean, it's funny that these companies will ask like, you know, so how many people can you have in a class? And the fact is that I vary it by country because it sort of depends on the culture and how boisterous people are. But if I say to a client in Israel, I take up to 16 people, and they say, really, 16? Now, where did I come with 16? I don't know. At some point, I just sort of decided it was a good number. Could I have 20? I probably could. But now I say 16. And they say, well, we have 18 people. I say, oh, fine. We can tack on some more money for that. But the extra money is because I'm trying to discourage it for pedagogical purposes because I really like to have interactions with them. Mm. And they're like, wow, he's really thought this through. And I guess I have... But it sounds much more authoritative coming up with that than, as you said, like, oh, whatever, 16, 18, it's basically the same thing. Let's just go for it. Because remember, they're also paying for this. And if they can save money, like I've just basically said, I will give you a, what would that be like, you know, 8%, 10% discount just because you asked. <laughs> so, right. Radiates and experience is, I think, a, a great way to describe it. One, like, I guess, counter caution point, if you're listening to this and thinking like, okay, I'm going to arbitrarily define a lot of process to put them through. So I seem experienced. Be careful with that because like what Reuven and I are both talking comes from like actual applied hands-on experience. So, oh, I taught a bunch of classes with too many people in it. It didn't go well. I'm going to set this rule. If you're just making stuff up that can come out and then that's worse than having no process. Like if you just arbitrarily decide on some number because you want to have a number and a client is like, oh, why that number? And that catches you flat-footed and you have no explanation. Well, then you seem like a BS. So you do want to walk a line, you know, and it can be something as simple as like, why do you limit your discovery calls to 30 minutes? You know, like I find that I lose focus after 30 minutes. I don't know if that's what I'd go with, but it can just be simple things that speak to your process. It doesn't need to be that you're citing, well, after, you know, doing 800 discovery calls, I have empirical data that suggests, but you should have reasons for the things that you're doing structure wise, not just doing it for its own sake, I would say. Absolutely. Any last little uh, things to mention before we move on to picks? I guess if I'm thinking about sales process and sales calls in general, especially for calls, I would suggest that you, number one, practice doing a sales call. You want to get it kind of refined. It makes me think of when we were talking to Philip a couple of episodes ago, you don't want it to always be improv night. So get your sales process and pitch somewhat down. I would also recommend that you record it, whether live or practicing it, which can be painful but watching yourself do this is pretty informative. So it is a skill that you can get good at. It can get so rhythmic that it's almost like you're giving a presentation and you're relaxed and confident. So if you're looking to get better at sales, in particular, if you find that you lose people a lot after sales calls, your so-called win rate is bad, you can work on it and grow it as a skill. And then the other thing I would suggest as part of your sales process is whether it's through the kind of rules you define or what the process looks like or some other way, Use that process to set boundaries. If you capitulate to everything a client or prospect demands, if you let them run roughshod over you, that's not going to get better during the engagement. So if you don't want your life to be 4 a.m. phone calls on Sunday, establish some boundaries and rules of engagement up front that you make clear during the sales process. And even if that costs you prospects, that's okay. You don't want that business. Absolutely. I agree with all that. Okay, let's then move on to picks. Eric, what you got for this week? I'll do two since I mentioned it earlier. The E-Myth, or I think the more common form you'll find it in now, is the E-Myth Revisited. In that book, at the beginning, the author establishes these three archetypes, the technician, the manager, and the entrepreneur. And the idea isn't that these are three different people. It's that they exist in some proportion within all of us. And for people that have been, say, an engineer or a designer, he describes this type of person as like the technician mindset that you have a craft and you do it well. And one of the more intriguing things he says at the beginning is a lot of new freelancers or business owners aren't entrepreneurs per se. They're technicians that have an entrepreneurial moment. They get tired of working for their boss or something and they say, you know, screw this. I'm going out on my own. And then they, you know, ratchet right back down into technician mode, ignoring the manager, which is the person that kind of keeps the business running and mitigates risk. And the entrepreneur who's the big visionary thinker. We've all got all three of them inside us in various proportions, but 
the danger for a lot of freelancers is you're only an entrepreneur for a second, then you're pure technician. And that's kind of what I was saying before is that a site like an Upwork or a TopTal can feed into that and say, no, go ahead, just be a technician. Don't ever worry about your business. So there's a danger. If you're thinking of going into business for yourself, hanging out a shingle, I would give that book a read, especially the beginning of it is just solid gold. And then the other thing I'll link to is a blog post that I wrote, I want to say like a year ago. And basically, I wrote a lengthy post walking freelancers through the different stages of a sales cycle and how to like reason about a CRM and that type of stuff. So some of you might find that helpful. Oh, very nice. So I've got two picks, but neither of them has really anything to do with freelancing, but they are so great. How can I not? So (laughs) the first one is there's this columnist at Bloomberg, Matt Levine, who writes a newsletter called Money Stuff. If you are interested in business, if you're interested in finance, it is both really interesting and hysterically, ridiculously funny. He also, Matt Levine, writes three to five times a week, and he writes an incredibly large amount of text. Like, do not feel bad if you cannot get through all of his text every week. But, oh, my God, my family hears me fortling as he talks about it. He says things like, you know, everything is securities fraud. And so you can learn a lot about the business world, the investment world, through his eyes, through his writing, which is great. Um, it's also a great example of, look, good in business, you want to be able to tell a story. And he cuts the heart of the stories of what's going on at times in businesses and describes it in ways that can really be useful, even if you're not in the finance world. So that's pick number one. Pick number two is really off the wall, but oh my God, it's changed my life, which is Amy Hoy, who you might have heard of from uh, 30 by 500. She wrote on Twitter, I guess it was like two or three weeks ago, I can't believe I just watched an hour and a half of YouTube videos about dishwashers and I really enjoyed it. And I was like, okay, I got to find out what's going (laughs) on here. Guess what I did? I watched an hour and a half of two YouTube videos about dishwashers and oh my God, my eyes have been opened. I feel like now I understand how dishwashers work and how to use them. And he starts off the video. It's this guy who basically starts the video by saying, you are using your dishwasher wrong. And my instinct was to say, oh, he's going to tell me how to pack it with dishes, so it's going to be used effectively. No, that is not what he's talking about. He's talking about how it actually works so you can use the soap better. And bottom line is those gel packs that we all use in our dishwasher are not sufficient. And he goes through, like, why you want to use more things. Anyway, my family will never forgive me for watching these videos because I drive them completely bananas when it comes to using the dishwasher now. However, our dishes have (laughs) never, ever come out cleaner, and I am quite the proud dishwasher owner as a result. <laughs> if you have a, an hour and a half and a family that won't mind you getting obsessive about such things, I really recommend the video. On that note, thanks as always for listening. We'll be back next time with more hints on how to start and improve your business and freelancing because we are here on the business of freelancing. See you next time.